and you may be seated. Really good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we are starting a new series called Following Jesus. And how do we follow Jesus and how we lead, live, and love? And if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Speaking of leadership, I'd like to just ask, what is your leadership style? And you're feeling like, I don't know, I've never really given a lot of consideration. That's too tough of a question. Let me scale it back. How would the people that are around you describe your leadership style? You might be thinking like, well, I've never really considered myself much of a leader. Uh, If you're an influencer, uh, if you are a parent, a teacher, uh, you are a manager, if you are giving care to even just one person, you're caring for them, you're a leader. And the question I'd like to ask you is, is your leadership style the leadership style of Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus in the area of leadership? Now, when we come to Matthew chapter 20, all the way up to this point, the disciples have basically had kind of delegated projects where Jesus was giving them a task to do, whether in passing out bread, fish, maybe even going on a short-term little mission where they're doing some preaching. But it was Jesus telling them exactly what to do and them coming back. What's happening right before the cross is Jesus begins to give them the absolute critical instructions of what it means to lead in his kingdom. And for the disciples, they really didn't have good examples growing up. Maybe you could relate. Uh, Maybe the examples that you have had, uh, whether in your own home or in your occupation, have been less than desirable. Let me give you some of the leadership styles that the disciples of Jesus were familiar with. They were familiar with the Herodians. These are the ones, they were Jewish leaders who basically did everything they could to compromise with the Romans. They were willing to compromise their faith in order to gain allegiance with Rome. And then, of course, there were the Sadducees. These were the religious elite, most of the uh, part of the governing body of Jews called the Sanhedrin. Uh, These were liberal in their theology And they were very accommodating to the culture. And then, of course, you had the leadership of the Pharisees, which were on the exact opposite end. They were very legalist. Uh, They had all sorts of man-right rules and traditions. And they would coerce people, try to badger people into following them. But the one leadership example that really stood out in their minds was the country that had conquered them. It was the Romans. The Romans introduced into their life the fear-braced, autocratic, dictatorial, demeaning, and demanding form of leadership. And it was this harsh leadership style that really stood out in the minds of the initial disciples. In fact, it is still very much uh, aspired to by many individuals, even though they wouldn't want to label it as fear-based leadership. Now, when we talk about leadership, what is it? Bob Beal, a guy who's an executive mentor, has given us an excellent definition. It's one that I've used on a regular basis. I think about it a lot. He simply says this, a leader knows what to do next, why it is important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear to the situation. That's what a leader is. They know what to do next, why it is important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear. Whoever does that emerges as the leader, whether you have the title or not. And with Jesus, he definitely had a goal in mind for his disciples. And that is this, 
to develop mature disciple-making followers of him. Jesus is bringing his disciples so that they become mature disciple-making followers of him, that they become life-giving leaders, love-based shepherds. But in order for that to happen, there is going to need to be a complete change of orientation in their lives. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 addresses leadership, it's addressed in a situation where we could almost call it a crisis. The disciples simply didn't understand what it means to be a life-giving leader. And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't even know what a life-giving leader is. How do you become one? I want you to know that this is critically important to me personally and to all of us who are followers of Jesus. If you're going to be a life-giving leader, though, you need to understand there's some major barriers that are going to keep you from leading well and loving well in Christ's kingdom. And Jesus begins to address them. So the first barrier that you need to be under, understand is this, a failure to focus on Jesus and his words. Take a look, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. This is Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. And there's a crowd of folks coming to this Passover. In fact, that was part of the Jewish faith. Three times a year, you made an appearance in Jerusalem. They're coming to the Passover. This, by the way, is the third out of four different times where Jesus tells his disciples explicitly what is about to happen, that he was going to be handed over. Literally, the word could be betrayed, handed over to the Gentiles. He was going to be scourged, mocked, and a specific form of execution, crucified. But on the third day, he says, I will rise again. You would have thought that what the disciples were like, whoa, Jesus, you keep talking about this. This is obviously critically important what, you're going to be handed over and you're going to be crucified, like rise again on the third day? But I want you to know that the disciples, it was almost as if this was just a total enigma. They were just obtuse. They simply didn't really understand, like, he keeps talking about this, but I don't get it. And it really wasn't on the forefront of their mind, nor was it the orientation of their heart. You see, when you and I fail to focus on Jesus and his words, that is going to be a major barrier for you developing as God intended. If you're an influencer, parent, teacher, in your company, if you are not listening to Jesus and his words, you don't have a habit of actually learning from his word, why, that's going to be a huge, um, major problem and barrier to your development, especially as a leader. Let me give you another major barrier, and that is seeing Jesus as just a means to your own self-focused agenda. Take a look at verse 20. You would have thought that they would have been like, Jesus, we need to need more. Man, totally time out. We want help in understanding this. Jesus had barely exhaled and taken in his next breath when all of a sudden James and John moved into action. 
They had a plan, and Jesus was going to be a part of it. You always know when guys are really serious when they bring their mother into the issue. Take a look. Look what happened here. The scripture records it just the way it happened. Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. And here we have the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This woman's name is Salome. She is very likely the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That makes the sons of Zebedee, guys by the name of James and John, very likely cousins of Jesus. Jesus in Mark chapter 4 actually had a special name for these two men. Do you remember what they called him? He called them the sons of thunder, man. Where they went, there was commotion, rumbling. Things were being disturbed, man. They had a way of making their presence known. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. And they so bad wanted key spots in the kingdom that Jesus kept talking about. Even though they didn't fully understand it, they knew like, wow, it's getting close. And in order to secure the top two spots... They bring in mama, right? Who's going to turn down their mother? And so look at, can't you imagine the sons of thunder? I mean, can't you imagine these just kind of burly guys, a little bit, you know, kind of hyper, you know? And And here's mama, and she's got both of the boys, and they're just making their way to Jesus. And they've they've told her exactly what they want. This would be this would be our dream come true. And so to notice, she actually bows down before Jesus, showing a sign of deference. And he asks her, what do you wish? What is it that you really want? What's on your heart, in your mind? What do you really want? And she told him, we want the positions of highest prominence. When she says to sit on your right and your left, that's what I want for my two boys it's as if saying, you know, we understand your, coming, your kingdom is coming. We believe you're the king. We want the position of chief of staff and prime minister. There's only two thrones that are going to be able to be right next to Jesus. One on the right, one on the left. We want them, James and John. You see, they understood greatness very much like the Romans presented. They thought greatness in the kingdom of God would be based on status, a rank, position, authority. They didn't understand that the kingdom of God was first going to reign and rule in the hearts of his people, not focused on a geographic palace, but in the hearts and the lives of his people. But you see, when you see Jesus as just kind of a means to your own self-focused agenda, you got a major barrier to developing as the kind of leader that God intends and is needed in his kingdom. Let me give you another major barrier to becoming a life-giving leader, and that is being blinded by pride. You want to see what that looks like? Look at verse 22. 
But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. I want you to think about what's taking place here. Pride has a way of blinding you. When all you can see is yourself and your glory and how you can get ahead and how you can achieve what you think is greatness, security, life, it has a way of blinding you from what is really most important. Furthermore, you don't even think through the implications of what you're saying or what you're even asking for. Jesus said, really, is that what you want? Are you able to drink the cup? It's an idiom for speaking of the full measure. You remember when Jesus uh, would be not long from now in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? Matthew chapter 26. And remember what he was praying? He fell down on his face and he said this, My Father, if it is possible to remove this cup, may it pass from me, right? Remember that? What is he referring to? The full cup, the full measure of God's just wrath coming down upon Jesus, the sinless lamb. And Jesus is saying, if there is any other way to be the payment for sin, to die, to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity, let this cup pass from me. And yet, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And so when Jesus asked them, are you able to really drink the cup of suffering? Not that they're going to in any way be able to pay for sins, but are you willing to suffer? Do you understand that my mission goes right through a cross. Do you understand that my mission isn't about your uh, security and just well-to-do life and your comfort? My mission goes through a cross. Are you able to drink that kind of cup of suffering? And those guys, (laughs) they're blinded by pride. Oh, they say, of course we are. They didn't ask any clarification, any questions. That's what pride does. It's all about you, and you've amped yourself up, and you're going to move forward with your own agenda. Of course we're able to do it. Well, we, we find out, you know, of course, what happened. When the going got tough, Jesus gets apprehended in the garden. What did those guys do? We're out of here, right? No way. We're... This looks like this could get really ugly real quick. We're gone real fast. I want you to know that one of the major barriers of being a life-giving leader is being blinded by pride. Let me give you another. Not looking for God's will. That's certainly the case of these guys. Take a look at verse 23. He said to them, after they made their quick response, of course we're able. My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You see, he's pointing out the fact like, listen, you're not asking for God's will. And Jesus tells him, listen, those positions, that's not mine to give. That is according to God's divine, sovereign will. These guys, they're like, oh, they weren't really interested in God's will for their lives, were they? They were interested in what? Their desires for greatness. They wanted to be esteemed as leaders as the world defined it. 
And when Jesus said, listen, that cup of suffering, not that they're going to pay for any sin, but that you're going to get to suffer for my cause, he says, that cup, you will drink. And that's exactly what happened. James, uh, you can read about it, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He actually was killed in a pretty horrific way. You can read about it. He was executed by Herod Agrippa I. And John, John watched all of the disciples die horrific deaths and being persecuted for their faith. And he himself was beaten and put on an island called Patmos. When Jesus said, you're going to drink the cup of suffering, they were. But he says, when it comes to these positions, that's for God to determine. If you're going to be a life-giving leader, you desperately want God's will and not your will. And so... Let me give you one final other barrier to being a life-given leader. And that is not considering others. How well do you think this is going to sit with the other ten, with James and John bringing mama and making this grand request for the top two spots? Well, you don't have to guess. It's written right here in black and white. Here is a pretty ugly scene. Verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, okay? I mean, this, this idea, don't get the idea like this is just righteous indignation, like, oh, this is not the way things are done in the kingdom. You should really not be asking Jesus this. Uh-uh, uh-uh. These guys are really mad. They're upset. They want to vote James and John, the sons of thunder, off the island. They want them out of there, right? And they're at each other's throats, They're indignant. They're upset. And let me tell you why. They're upset because of how they did it. They brought mama into the situation. Who does that, right? Oh, come on. You're bringing your mother into this? They were upset. Why? Because they were actually seeing that, like, they're trying to gain advantage over us. That means that somehow they'll be over us. And they're upset about when they did it. They did it before them. You see, In the world's eyes, and that is really how kingdoms work, those closest relatives and closest associates, they had the top spots in the kingdoms of the world. You just study world history and you'll see that. And they assume that the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of world. And that's how it'll all be divvied up. And they had completely missed what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God. I want you to know, that if you are a person that's just chasing the brass ring in this life, you're willing to do whatever it takes, any compromise, any sacrifice to get that brass ring, to get that title, that amount of money, that position, that position of leadership, I want you to know that is going to be very costly. It's going to show up in your relationships. It's going to affect your family. It's going to hurt the people you work with. If you've got that kind of mentality and you're operating like in our church that way, it's going to bring about a lot of confusion and dysfunction. We're going to have breakdown. If that's how you operate in your company or in the team that you lead or that board that you sit on, you shouldn't be surprised that you've got a lot of problem and dysfunction. And if you want to know like, well, who's the problem? Just look in a mirror if this is your form of leadership. You know, it's easy to come to the thinking that uh, we can actually just actually operate like the ways of this world. And, you know, as I've gone through this and really studied leadership and studied this passage, you know what? Sometimes 
and I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, I've seen this in me. There's a guy by the name of Robert Rains, and he mused this on this subject. I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, often sensibly, for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, and your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Friends, this is a mission-critical moment. If these guys continue on the trajectory that they're, in, they're going in, this is going to be utter disaster for the kingdom of God and the establishment of the church. What they need is the mindset for life-giving leadership, and Jesus steps in. That's what leaders do. They don't run from the problems. They run to the gunfire, right? Where are the shots being made That's where the leader is going to show up because he must address it, and so he does. The mindset for a life-giving leader is, first of all, you've got to be service-oriented. Look what Jesus has to say, beginning in verse 25. These guys are at each other's throats. They're finger-pointing, judging, complaining, backstabbing, and they're about ready to get into a fight. And verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. You know that's how the world leads. Autocratic, dictatorial, self-centered, self-seeking. That is how the Gentiles, the world, leads. But notice what he says in verse 27, or verse 26. He says, That's not how it's supposed to be for you. You see that? It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. If you want to be great, and they all really wanted to be great, Jesus says, let me tell you how it really works. Greatness is seen in terms of servanthood, to be service-oriented. You see, we lead by serving, and we serve by leading. It's paradoxical, and it's the opposite of what the world says. You lead by gaining control, gaining influence, owning, having resources, obtaining power, using a fear-based approach, getting people to toe the line. Jesus says, in my kingdom... Greatness is seen by love-based leadership. It is seen by being a shepherd who is a servant, yielded to me. That doesn't mean that you just do whatever anybody says. Like, well, you just need to be completely servile. Someone says, I need you to do this. You're a servant, aren't you? Well, that's not quite how it works. You are focused on what God wants. 
You're asking God what is the best and what is good for all. What do you want? And I want you to know that if you're going to be a servant who has a service mindset, there are going to be times where some folks are not going to quite understand. They may even be upset with you because you're not doing what they want. If you're going to be a life-giving leader, you are subject to the giver of life, the king, and you have a service mindset. You see, greatness in God's kingdom begins in the heart. It begins with the heart of seeing yourself as a servant. And that means when you see yourself as a servant, why all of a sudden God calls the shots. You're interested in his will. That means that if God wants you to go to a difficult place, to serve in less than ideal conditions, the lonely, to face persecution, to face perhaps even rejection, you're willing to do it because you serve the king. And this kind of service looks like this, that when, even when you're not appreciated, you still can walk forward with joy. When you, you will work for excellence with not becoming proud, you will deal with criticism. And if you're a leader, you are going to be criticized. And the higher up in terms of influence you have, the more criticism you're going to face. But you can face that criticism without becoming bitter. That you can be misjudged and not become defensive. That you can withstand suffering and not succumb to self-pity. You see yourself as a servant. You have a service orientation. And friends, this is critically important. If you were a follower of Jesus, he wants you to see yourself as a servant of him. And I want you to remember, this is exactly what actually happened with the disciples. Remember how, like, the New Testament letters, like, for instance, like Paul, how does he begin, like, all of his letters? Does he begin by talking about how mighty and powerful he is? No. How does he begin the letters? Did you, or did you, just, did you skip over it? Do you remember how it begins? Paul, a uh, bondservant, right? It's a hybrid word. It literally could be translated slave. I am a bondservant. I'm a slave of Christ. The same is true with Peter, James, the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, John. How do they see themselves? John writes in the book of Revelation 1.1, he sees himself as a bondservant, a servant of Christ. If you're going to be a life-giving leader, you have to be service-oriented. But second, you need to be Savior-centered. Service-oriented, Savior-centered. So Jesus said, he said, verse 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. But look what he says in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just as the Son of Man, remember that messianic title from the book of Daniel? Jesus so often used it of himself, speaking of his humanity, but also pointing to his deity. He says, this is why the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom. The word ransom has the idea of to pay the price to free a prisoner. And in this case, Jesus pays the price of death to free us from the penalty of sin 
and to invite us into relationship with himself, he came to do that. If you're like, wow, you know, I'm really glad I'm here because I see that uh, Jesus, I just need to kind of follow his example. And that's maybe all there is to Christianity. You just follow certain principles. Well, yes, you're to follow his example, but you need to know the reason Jesus came is verse 28, to be your ransom, to die on your place, to bring you into relationship with himself because Jesus is not only our pattern on how to live and to lead, he is our power. We can do nothing apart from his presence. We need him. That's why he says, just as you need to follow me. I came to be your ransom, but I am the absolute perfect example of what it means to lead. You are to be Savior-centered. You see, this is going to be so very challenging. In fact, some of you might be going like, man, this conflicts with pretty much everything I've even known about leadership. Maybe your way of life is pretty much the opposite of this. And in fact, you relate very well to James and John. Jesus is addressing the eye. A guy by the name of Vance Havner asked some pretty good questions. He asked like this, has Jesus taken over in your heart? He says, you know, he may reside there, but does he preside there? Is he really calling the shots? Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? I know you know about Jesus, and you know some stories, And you're like, man, I need a Savior, so I'm going to trust him as Savior. But to trust him as Savior is to know him as Lord. Is he presiding in your heart? I want you to know that our sin, our flesh, it likes to exalt ourselves. We want the position of God. This takes us all the way back to the lies in the garden. We want esteem, value. We want it to be about us. We want our life to be about us and how good we can make it for me, right? I want you to know that's missing the mark. That's what the word sin means. Jesus says, I am to be your pattern. Live like I have lived. We've got to learn how to cross out the I. If you want to be a love-based shepherd, you need to cross out the eye. So envision this. You take that eye, and you're like, well, how do you do that? Well, you cross it out. You turn it into like a lowercase t. The eye, this is what the world says. You need to clamor after it. It's all about you, your rights, what you can get out of this life. Jesus says, if you really want me, it's all about me. You want to cross out the eye. And let me be the Lord of your life. If you really want to be a leader in Christ's kingdom, you want to be a Savior-centered servant. You've got to cross out the I. Friends, what Jesus is after here, it's not about like, well, can he get you to serve in some different areas? This is not that. It's to see yourself as a servant, to live as a servant. Richard Foster says this, there is a difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When I choose to serve, I retain control about whom I serve and when I serve. But when I choose to be a servant, I have given up all rights 
and all control. You see, if you're saying, well, well, I'm going to serve here. Pretty noble. I hope some people notice. Hey, I'm serving over here. Or I don't really like this, and I'm just kind of, ugh, I can't wait for this over. What are you doing? I'm serving God, and I'm doing this, you know? That's not how servants go about it. Servants have the mindset, Lord, how do you want to use me? No small, no task too small, nothing too large. I'm going to trust you. How can I serve? You see it in, in your life. It's, it's how you conduct yourself. And you're like, oh, that would be a miserable life if you saw yourself as a servant. Actually, it's the path of joy in Christ. That's where you find true freedom. And like, I mean, even the world in research is discovering that if you actually have a mindset of seeing yourself as a servant, it leads to happiness. For instance, in 2007, January 7th, New York Times Magazine published this article called Happiness 101, and it is not what you would expect. They talk about research, and research has pointed out that when you are leading an unselfish life of service, service to other people, get this, It gives you a sense of meaning, of being useful and valuable, of having a life of significance. Wow! I mean, even research is showing, if that's your orientation, this is really the path to fullness and wholeness. Here's the problem. So many of us are after success. And you really see this, especially when you're young. Man, I've got to make my mark and, and set my identity here. And, and I've got to be known as successful. And I've got to be successful. Jesus wants to move us past success to significance. And that happens when we become Savior-centered servants. Let me give you one of the big problems in Christianity We have all these people who say they are following a crucified Savior, and they're doing so with an uncrucified ego, and it doesn't work. It creates all sorts of dysfunction and problems, and it sends this world a really confusing message. Serious? You're following Jesus, but you behave and lead like that? Huh. I don't really see the difference. Friends, let's move past trying to be successful, okay? Let's look at significance. And if you think like, well, you know, the church, they pretty much always follow Jesus, right? They do as he says. And so this this isn't a problem in the church. Time out. The church, and I'm speaking of the church at large, especially what's happening in evangelical Christianity is overrun by success-minded, self-centered leaders, where it's all about me, the bigger, the better, my popularity, but it's all done in Jesus' name. How do you think Jesus really responds to that? Like, what do you think he thinks about the world's leadership being translated and how the churches run? If you really want the answer, just read Revelation 2 and 3. He actually wrote seven letters to critique a church would look like, and when they're off track, Jesus had to address this issue, and he is. And friends, when you serve, have a service orientation and a savior-centeredness about you, I want you to know when you lead like that, with your family, at school, on your team, on your board, with your company, I want you to know people thrive 
It's life-giving. They aspire to, do, to grow, to mature. It can even be contagious. In fact, it is. Because there are so many, as I just kind of look around, seeing Savior-centered servants, you kind of glow, and you have a lot of influence, and you actually are pointing the path. This is the way, just as Jesus said. So if you're saying like, you know what? I would like to grow as a Savior-centered servant, but what does that look like? Let me just give you a few pointers if you want to be a a love-based shepherd. First of all, you need to be proactive, not just reactive and most certainly not passive. You need to step up, be proactive. How can you serve in this situation? Here's another, bloom where you're planted. Stop thinking like, well, if I was in a different setting, different marriage, different company, I would really thrive. Probably not. Let's start where God has placed you. Bloom where you're planted. Here's here's something that I find to be really helpful. Just see yourself as a savior-centered servant. I want you to like, this is is what I try to do. And especially at those times where like a little bit of self-pity gets in like, man, I really hate this, you know? I really don't like this, right? To remind myself, you know what? I think Jesus is calling me to savior-centered servant. Whether you're mowing the yard, doing the dishes, leading in a meeting, uh, giving of yourself in some pretty sacrificial ways, everything changes. I, I know this from firsthand experience. When you see yourself as a savior-centered servant, usually it happens very quickly. Sometimes it takes a couple minutes to kick in because your flesh like, it really doesn't like this. But it's really not about you, is it? It's about Jesus. And for those of you who are high-level leaders, I don't want to just talk with you for just a couple minutes. And when I say high-level leader, meaning you got to influence over a lot of people. You're running a significant branch, maybe a company. You've got a lot of people that you're influencing. Let me just talk with you about what that looks like to be a Savior-centered servant. One is you want to ask God how you can serve that organization or ministry as a whole or the big area in which you lead. You want to be asking God, what does that look like? Here's another. You want to create a culture of biblical values. Now, you may not be in a company that you can, like, put a chapter and verse on every one of the values, but you can cultivate these uh, in the company or in the area that you lead. And you're like, well, like, what would that be? Like, for instance, treating everyone with respect, listening, honesty, valuing doing work well. That's how we do it here. We do our work well. Teamwork, honor, integrity. Cultivate this so this becomes the culture of the organization or the ministry that you lead. Here's another. Demonstrate covenant behavior, the making and keeping of promises. And let me give you another. Look for fair outcomes, win-win solutions. Don't be the guy or the gal like, I just got to work this contract in such a way that those are going to be high and dry and I'm going to make a load of money. Look for the win-win solution. And I want you to know there is a lot riding on your leadership, right? Whether you're just caring for one or caring for a couple thousand, there is a lot riding on it. And I want you to know that if you're a high-level leader, you got difficulties. You're going to face criticism. You will be misunderstood. And it's, it's hard, all the behind-the-scenes work. But friends, it's worth it to be a savior-centered servant. Remember what Bob Beale said, a leader knows what? what to do, what to do next, why it's important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear. And friends, this is God's vision for the church. Our church, 
but every church, that we would be Savior-centered servants. Just imagine, what would it look like if every single one of us saw ourselves as a Savior-centered servant? Friends, our community would be transformed. The light would be so bright. The functioning of our church, as good as it is, would be even exponentially better if we all saw ourselves as Savior-centered servants, all moving together, one, united in Christ, moving together in whatever role God has for us. You see, life-giving leaders are love-based servants. And when I look at my life priorities, at the very top of my list, I have this statement. My life is my ministry. See that for yourself. Your life is your ministry. And so did the disciples get it? Well, guess what? They did. They eventually got it. Do you remember um, Jesus? He commissioned Peter after the resurrection, and he commissioned him to feed my flock. But do you know John, one of the guys that was brought mama into that situation? Do you know what, you know what Jesus' assignment was for John? It was very different than Peter's. Do you remember it actually, when Jesus was on the cross, he told John basically this, you take care of my mother. Remember that? You take care of my mother. This is important to me. If you don't get Savior-centered servants, service, then you're like, oh, I want to be like Peter. You just do what God has called you to do. In fact, your present faithfulness in your current situation is preparing you for even greater work in the kingdom. It was in John's case because church history records that after Jesus' mother passed away, guess what he did? Why God used him to write you may have read this book, The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Do you know who wrote the final book of the Bible? Do you know the book of Revelation? That's right, John. So friends, see yourself as a Savior-centered servant. There is a, a bronze that has had a significant effect on my life. Um, it's found uh, in multiple places, but one place is Dallas Theological Seminary. And I spent a lot of time looking at this bronze, I'd go there, look at it, and I'd pray. Uh, at the times that I have opportunity to teach at the seminary, I oftentimes take my classes, and I have them walk around and stop and look at every single ang- angle. No talking. I just want you to look at this, because this is what God is seeking to do in all of our lives, making us Savior-centered servants. So friends, do you want to be a, a life-giving leader? We'll know this, that life-giving leaders are love-based servants. And when we do this, life-giving leaders live a legacy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just the power of your word. God, you show us greatness in your eyes, and you make it possible for us to truly be Savior-centered servants because of Jesus. And for someone who is here today who has never truly trusted you, in fact, These words from Jesus have cut them to the core, and they see the real need is to trust him as Savior. Would they pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin. This morning, I believe and trust in Jesus. Fill me and lead me. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, God, help us to walk in your ways, to live for your glory, to bask in your love and to reflect your likeness and how we live and how we love and especially in how we lead. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.